Good to be back here again. I, I'm just kind of curious. How many of you know about the Bible Project? The videos with the Bible? Quite a few of you. Okay, the rest of you need to pull out your phones right now. Google Bible Project and find out what it is. It's, we've got uh, seven-minute videos on each book of the Bible, theme videos. Uh, but here recently... Uh, we've been doing a different theme. We just call it the spiritual beings themes. And it's, we're about halfway through releasing those videos. And it's going into a little different perspective on things because uh, for a lot of folk, there's only one spiritual being. There's only one God. And his name is what? Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And so there's one God. Are there other spiritual beings? Yes. Yes. What's, what's the most famous of the spiritual beings other than the three persons in the one God, Yahweh? Satan. Satan. Uh-huh. What would be some other spiritual beings? Angels. So what are names of angels? Michael. What's the other scriptural one? Gabriel. Those are the two in the Bible. In the, Mac, in the uh, Apocrypha, we have Raphael, as they're named good guy. Those are only three of the angels have names in all the, the biblically related literature. On the other side, on the dark side, Satan is the, is the like chief dude. Who else? What are some other names? Baal, the god of the Canaanites. What? I didn't hear you. They, you've got Chemish and Moloch and Astarte and Isis and... A, uh, you've got like Greek god Zeus and Aphrodite and uh, now Bible geeks. Who is Prince of Persia? Uh, we don't have his name. We have his role, Prince of Persia and Prince of Greece. They're in Daniel chapter nine, Daniel 10. Uh, so we've got this thing going on. And there's a conflict between them. You see it in Revelation 12, for example. talks about Satan, his angels, fighting against Michael and his angels. Uh, And that warfare goes on. When did that warfare begin? I think, Gary has an opinion on everything, occasionally right. Uh, I think that warfare begins prior to Genesis 1-1. I think that what happened in the prehistory, if you look at John 8-44, it talks about the devil is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. I think that that's saying that before Genesis 1-1, there's already warfare going on in the heavenlies. The Satan, devil, whatever the various names we have for him, uh, apparently, Ezekiel 28, apparently points to the fact that there's a cherub who's a throne-bearing cherub who thinks I should be on the throne. And that's maybe the reason. I mean, we just don't know. But we get these hints. I think that happens prior to Genesis 1-1. And when God creates this universe and puts together this earth with human beings, he says we're in his image. And there in Genesis 1.28, he gives us a purpose. He blesses us, humans. He says, be fruitful and multiply. That doesn't mean just have babies. That means make more blessable, image-bearing covenant partners who will work with God And what do we do? We rule the rest of the earth. 
What does that mean? That means plant communities of blessable image-bearing covenant partners who will create communities characterized by justice, generosity, faithfulness, hope, love, compassion, forgiveness, all those kinds of things. And that's our mission. In this place where the war is going on already between God and Satan and all the spiritual warfare that goes on, the heavenly conflict, we see that in a lot of places in Scripture, we are created to be on the good guy side and we're to make more image-bearing covenant partners who will create communities characterized by justice, generosity, faithfulness, hope, love, compassion, forgiveness, all those things. And that's the original mission of humankind. It's the same mission in Matthew twenty nineteen and 20, when it says, go into all nations and make disciples, that's make more blessable, image-bearing covenant partners, teaching them all the things, to do all the things I've commanded you. That's creating communities of generosity, justice, and so on. Now, here's a, th- a lot of people agree with me so far. The place that I'm a little different is I think... I think that original act of creating humankind, Adam and Eve, and telling us to create more blessable image-bearing covenant partners, making communities, are you getting it yet? Generosity, justice, and so on. That's an act of war. That's an act of war. Well, that's not an act of war. That's good, exactly. Who are we doing war against? The evil one. Satan in the dominion of darkness and when you do war against the evil one, some call this the chaos monsters, dealing with death and despair and disaster and those things, when we do good, that is an act of war against the evil. And the weapons of warfare that we use are the weapons of good. So Romans twelve twenty one concludes that amazing chapter by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's what we're doing in this war, is we are going through and we're doing that. And so Genesis 1, I'm believing, is an act of war that God is doing against the evil one. And that act of war is, shall I say it one more time? (laughs) To create blessable, image-bearing covenant partners who will create communities characterized by generosity, justice, faithfulness, compassion, forgiveness, those kinds of things. That is an act of war every time we do that. Now, that's Genesis chapter 1. And what we're talking about here... Let's see, do I have that turned on? I don't. It would help if I had it turned on. Uh, what we're doing here is I want to talk about the fact, this promise as we come into the Easter season, that Messiah will crush the serpent. And that's a theme that runs all through Scripture, and that's the theme, a big theme that's in the spiritual being's Uh, themes that come in. So, Genesis chapter 3, it begins, of course, with Satan deceiving Eve and Adam joining her in sin. God comes and calls, inviting them to confess. Adam begins, okay, God goes a step further, inviting more confession. Adam blows up totally, blames Eve and God for what he did. Oh my gosh. He goes to Eve and said, what did you do? She said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Yes, exactly. She takes responsibility for what happened. But then who does God attack back at? Eve or Adam? Serpent. Now he'll go to Eve and Adam 
But he begins with a serpent. Because that's the enemy. Ephesians 6.12 tells us our war is not against flesh and blood, but against thrones, powers, dominions, authorities, and heavenly places. Our real enemy is not people, no matter how evil they are. Our real enemy is the serpent. They're taken captive to do his will, but our real enemy is not people, no matter how evil they might be. Not in a sense they are. But our real enemy is a serpent. And this is what God says to the serpent. Because you've done this, that is deception, cursing above all the livestock, all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust shall eat all the days of your life. Now, how many are beaver fans? Anyone who admits to being a duck fan in here? There's one, well, okay, a few of you courageous folk. I, I predict got my prophet hat on here, that there will be a thing we call a civil war game coming up here. You think that'll happen? Who's going to win? <laughs> I won't make a prediction on that. But I will predict what will happen is there'll be an, an offensive lineman on one side and a defensive lineman on the other, and they're going to be saying, I'm going to make you dirt. What do they mean by that? I'm going to trash you up so bad that you're going to be spitting dirt for the rest of your life. That's what God says to the serpent. You are not going to win. You are not going to win. This isn't saying the serpent, that snakes crawl on their bellies. It's not about that at all. It's a statement of what a conquering general does to a conquered general. I'm going to show how beaten you are to the triumph of the goodness of God. But then he goes on from there and he says this. I, who's the I? That's God. Will put enmity between you. Who is the you? That's the serpent. We found out later that's the devil and, and Satan. The key thing is, is Revelation twelve seven. following. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Who is that? That's Eve. So there's that enmity. And that serpent probably isn't just a regular snake. It's probably a, a spiritual being who is, looks like, or we don't know what it is. But I, I don't think there's a, probably it could be a literal serpent. But I think certainly behind that is one of the spiritual beings we call Satan. And between your offspring, okay, who is serpent's offspring? Is that little snakes? Is it? Well, it's not little snakes. Especially if that is not just an ordinary snake. And it's certainly not an ordinary snake. I think what this is talking about, the offspring here are other evil spiritual beings. Like Moloch and Baal and Chemish and Isis and Artemis and all of those. And they're real spiritual beings. They're super powerful. Remember, those are the spiritual beings that turn staffs into serpents in Pharaoh's throne room in Exodus chapter 7. They're very real. So I think what's happening here, we're ahead of ourselves here, your offspring is demon gods and those who worship them. The offspring of the serpent are demon gods and those who worship him. And then the other side of it is, 
her offspring. And at this point, it's a collective. And at this point, it's Messiah and those who worship him. So it's talking about two groups of people, the dominion of darkness and the kingdom of light. Those who worship the Satan and the demon gods, those who worship Messiah, Yahweh, the triune God. He will bruise your head. Who's the he? Who's the he? Aren't you ticked off that you got a seminary professor to do your sermon for you? <laughs> Who's the he? That's Messiah. Will bruise your head. Whose head? Satan's. What happens when Messiah bruises the serpent's head? What happens to the serpent? Well, it kills him. So here's a prediction. The Messiah will kill the serpent. Okay? But we're not done yet. There's another line in the poem. Another line is this. And you, who's the you? That's a serpent. Will bruise his heel. Whose heel? What happens when serpent bruises Messiah's heel? I hear a lot of preachers say, well, all Satan can do is tap him on the heel. No, actually, this is a viper. The serpent's going to kill the Messiah. This says, this is a prediction that the Messiah is going to die at the serpent's hand at the same time that he is killing the serpent. Those are both going on. And when I think about this from my atonement theology, I see a couple of, uh, two key themes here. So the first theme, Messiah will kill the serpent, is what we call the triumph theme, or Christus Victor sometimes is called. And the triumph theme is that he, Messiah, will destroy the authority of the devil and eventually crush him and send him to hell. Because hell, of course, is created for Satan and those who worship him. Satan does not reign in hell, contra Milton. Satan is going to be punished in hell. That's why it's there. Triumph, he will destroy the authority of the devil. But the other side of that is the substitution, Messiah's death, is given so that we can have his life. Now, there are other themes that go on. There's example, Jesus shows how to live by his sacrificial death and calls us to be like him. There's revelation, he shows us the character of God and what he does. Uh, There's cleansing, I mean, there's a number of different things that happen to this propitiation Those are all different themes that happen. But these are two fundamental themes that are there from the beginning. Triumph, Messiah will destroy the authority of the devil, and substitution. Now let's unpack this just a little bit. Hebrews chapter 2, the preacher here is reflecting on Genesis chapter 3, I think. Therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, who's the he there? Who's the he? That's Messiah. He himself likewise, so the second person of the Trinity, partook in the same things, that is flesh and blood, that's the incarnation. The Son of God, this eternal second person of the Trinity, becomes fully, completely human, God at the same time, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Who has the power of death? Satan. And his thing, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we're enslaved to Satan in the dominion of darkness. That doesn't mean we're demon possessed. 
That's another one. But we're in the authority of Satan in the dominion of darkness. And what it's saying here is the Messiah came to destroy that authority so we can be delivered into the kingdom of light. Hebrews chapter 2. 1 John chapter 3, just one phrase of this incredible passage where in 1 John 3, John is reflecting back on Genesis chapter 3, the things that are there. But it says here specifically why, God, why the Son of God came, why the eternal second person of the Trinity came. And why did he come? Why did he come? To destroy the works of the devil. That's one reason. It's not the only reason. But that's a key thing. That's the triumph theme of atonement. He is going to destroy the work of the devil. 1 John chapter 3. Now, in the middle of the Bible is John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, this is one of the piton verses of John. I think there, there's in the beginning John 1, 14 and such. The end, John chapter 20, verse 31 and such. But in the middle, you've got this John 12. And it's saying here, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Who is the ruler of this world? That's Satan. I thought God was the ruler of this world. Who is the ruler of this world? You really want Satan to be the ruler of this world? Well, it's no matter what we want... What apparently happened is back there in Genesis chapter 3 when Eve and Adam betrayed the trust of God and decided to trust themselves instead of trusting God. They played into Satan's deception. In Eve's case, played in apparently knowingly in Adam's case. So Adam created the greater sin as I do it. Is somehow that transferred the whole world into Satan's authority. So we see him saying to Jesus in the garden, I will give you all the nations of this world if you worship me. Apparently, he at least thinks he has authority over the world. But God is Yahweh, is still the king, and his kingdom rules everything. But inside his kingdom, we have this occupied reality of the serpent who is prince of this world. Prince of this world, good guy or bad guy? Seriously bad guy. Seriously bad guy. And Messiah said, the ruler of this world will be cast out. But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop there. So, so important. And when I, Messiah says, when I am lifted up from this earth, I will do what? Draw whom? How many? How many? All. How many? Think of the worst, miserable, most blankety-blank person in your entire universe. Got that person in your mind? Poke him next door to you. (laughs) Does Messiah draw that person to himself? Do you want Messiah to draw that person to himself? (laughs) Or do you just want him to go straight to hell? Do not pass go. See, that's where things come out. It's, 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 I will draw all people to myself. Not just make it possible, but actually draw all people to himself. That's what's happening as he is doing this work of crushing the serpent. Now, does that mean everybody's going to heaven? Does that mean everybody's coming into the kingdom of Christ? No, because people have to receive that blood-bought forgiveness to complete the action. Not everybody, sadly, will end up with God in eternity or serve God now. People choose to continue to serve themselves and the serpent. 
which is really unfortunate but very real. Now, Luke 19. Triumphal entry. We're coming to the middle of the passage because this is Palm Sunday. In our church calendar, this is the day we remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem. And they brought the, the donkey, the mother and colt, they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, not on the mommy donkey, but on the baby donkey. Why did they do that? Because Zechariah predicts it will happen. This is a statement of the humble king who comes in on donkey, a colt, rather than on a white stallion or something like that. They set Jesus on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. What does that mean? That's a service thing. Let me make the way as smooth as possible. And they took off their outer robes and they put it on the road in front of the donkeys to prepare the way for Messiah to enter Jerusalem. Incredible triumph. And as he's drawing near, all the way down the Mount of Olives, so he's coming down into the Kidron Valley, back up the other side toward the temple. There's the temple in front of him. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. Hosanna is a way of saying that. Who's singing this song? The disciples. And the, and the people are joining in their song. Now, a few days later, we're going to have a crowd gathered, and they're going to be singing a different song. What song are they going to sing on Friday, just a few days later? Crucify him. Same crowd? I don't think so. I don't think so. The disciples are still loyal to him. The one, they're still serving the light. I think. Now, to be sure, they're, they've run away and they're terrified and all that sort of thing. But I think the ones who are saying crucify him are the ones who are consciously serving themselves and the serpent. Or perhaps unconsciously. That's that war that's going on. The disciples are saying Hosanna. The others are saying crucify him. The war is going on. Which one are you singing? See, what do you have to do to join in with Messiah and sing Hosanna? Just receive his healing and forgiveness. Just receive it. Lord Jesus, I'm so tired of running my life. I desperately need you because I've got so much brokenness. I've got so much guilt. I've got so much shame. Help me, Jesus. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. You don't have to build your resume. You don't have to get a tryout for the team. You just have to accept his free, blood-bought forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus, for sure. But see, if you're not saying Hosanna to him, you're saying, I'm with you to the darkness, because that's about self running the world. I judge myself. I do my own thing. I don't need your forgiveness, Jesus. I'll take care of it myself. I didn't do anything that bad, and I don't need you. I'm good. See, and that kind of... I mean, you're rejecting Messiah. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd turned and said, Lord, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if, if they're silent, the rocks themselves would cry out. This is a time of rejoicing, he says. 
But then look at the next verse. When he draw near and saw the city, he does what? Why does he weep? Why does Messiah weep over Jerusalem? Because he knows that many of them will say, thanks, but no thanks. I, I don't trust you, Jesus. I don't need your stuff. I've heard about you, and I frankly don't want anything to do with you. You go do your thing. I'll let you do your thing, but I'm going to do it myself. And see the... Actually, the heart of sin, the heart of it, is taking the king of the universe who created us to be blessable covenant bearer, image bearing covenant partners, to serve in that mission of bringing generosity, justice, goodness, love of God, love of neighbor. And you're saying, you know, I just, I just, I'm, no, I'm not with you. I heard what happens in churches. I heard about the judgmentalism and the bigoted and how they're down on this and that, and I just don't need that. Mm -mm, Nope. And the heart of sin is saying to God of the universe, I will define what's good. I will define what's right. I will define what is true. I will define what's beautiful. I will define what's real. Because I don't trust you, God. And see, the disciples are saying, Yeah, I got my perspective, and boy, do I not get you, God. But I'll let you define what's good and right and true and beautiful and real, even when it makes no sense to me. That's the heart of discipleship. So he says, take that person who has betrayed you so desperately and go talk to him and seek forgiveness. Say, no, I'll talk to him, but I'll take a shotgun with me. I just won't talk to him. I just, I just let it go. See, and that's defining for myself what's good, right, true, and beautiful, and real. But that's not the end of the story. Luke 23. The crucifixion. I'm stepping in the middle of the picture here. We get more of this Friday and Sunday. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one in his right, one on his left. So he is numbered among criminals by the powers of Rome and the powers of Jerusalem and by many people. And what does Jesus say there on the cross? He says seven different things. You'll hear it Friday night from Josh. What, one of the things he says, though, is this. What does he say? Forgive them. Who does he say this to? He says it to the Father. So he's praying, Father, forgive them. And in that process, he's saying himself, I forgive them. Now, those of you here last week, would it be just for Jesus to say, Father, inflict on them the same pain that they're inflicting on me? Would that be just? Yeah, we call that an imprecatory prayer. Those prayers are all through Scripture, and that's a perfectly valid prayer prayer. Jesus could have prayed, may they experience the same kind of pain that they're inflicting on me. And that would have been perfectly just. But he doesn't. 
What does he pray? May they not experience. And in particular, now, are these people down there, are they repentant? No, they're busy mocking him. The soldiers who killed him are now dividing his clothes among them and laughing at him. Come on, you're quite a savior. Like, come on down, save yourself. What a savior you are. As they're mocking him, as they're delighting in the fact that he is dying the most gruesome possible death, even the passion of the Christ, as violent as it was in that movie, passed over the worst of crucifixion because it's just too horrible a way to die. As he is dying, he says, I will absorb their pain. Can you forgive somebody who is unrepentant? Can you? See, in the, the heart of forgiveness is that pain that was inflicted on me. I give up my right to give it back. Can you forgive somebody who's unrepentant? Can you forgive somebody that you can't talk to? I think of my pretty wife. When she broke down the dissociative barriers with the help of an excellent Christian psychologist and began to face what had happened to her as a child... Her father was dead for almost 20 years by the time that happened. Can Sherry forgive her dead father? What does that mean? It means she gives up the right to trash his reputation. And she takes that pain into herself and with the power of Jesus and the power of a loving community says, I will bear the consequences of that pain. Does that mean like she pretended nothing happened? No, no, no. That's not forgiveness. That's denial. Does it mean there are no consequences? Can you forgive somebody and still have them face consequences? The answer is yes. If you go back to Numbers 13 and 14, where the people come Sinai buck to the Kadesh Barnea at the south end of the land, they send the spies in. Ten spies say big people are going to get killed. Two spies say... Big God, we're going to win. And the people say, we're headed back. And they try to kill Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb. And God is mad again against their violation of his trust. And he says, I'm going to kill them. And what does Moses do? He prays, Father, forgive them in a Christ-like prayer. And the Father says, I will forgive them. What does that mean? I'll not kill them. Because they've done this ten times. Remember somebody else that insulted God ten times? His name is Pharaoh. What happened to him? Well, a little difficult for him and his guys. Drowned in the ocean. Now, Israel has insulted God ten times. What do you expect? Fire and brimstone. What do they get? God says, you guys are not going in the land. Does he kick them off? No. He goes with them. Food, water, quail, manna, water, protection for enemies. Even their sandals don't wear out 40 years. Why do they wander 40 years in the wilderness? 
because those people are not going to the land. They're going to die on normal time, but in the wilderness, not in the land. They've lost that blessing irretrievably. Are there consequences for sin? Yes. Even when there's forgiveness? Yes, can be. Can be. See, that's what we're talking about, is that incredible act of forgiveness that the Father does. That the Father does. That Jesus does. Because Jesus takes into himself the pain, not only of those mockers, not only of those soldiers, but of the whole world. All that shame that you feel when you realize what you've done, he says, I'll bear that myself. That's what we're talking about here. Mark 15. You know the story. Jesus on the cross. Darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, from nine o'clock till noon. Sorry, from noon till three. Darkness, what does that mean? It's a sense like God is covering up his agony for three hours. It also symbolizes the fact that there's a separation between the Father and the Son. When the, when the Son comes back on, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? It means that he has suffered the consequence of eternal death. He is separated from the Father. Because when he cries out that Psalm 22 prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does the Father say back to him? Nothing. Why? He is in the agonies of spiritual death at that point, the very death that we take, because he takes our penalty in our place, substitution, so that we can have his life. And he dies completely alone. Forsaken by the Father. Is Jesus in agony? Like big time. Is the Father in agony? Even bigger time, I suggest. Just like Abraham sacrificing Isaac. What does Abraham think as he takes his son up the mountain to slice him and slaughter him and burn him? He's absolute agony in that Genesis 22 prophecy of what will happen on that same mountain. The father is sacrificing the son to be the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin, both agonizing. The father in agony for sacrificing his son. I'm going to be back celebrating my son's 50th birthday next week. I cannot in my wildest imagination think what it would be like to slaughter him for his 50th birthday. That's what Jesus did. That's what father did. Agony? Yeah, both agonizing. Why? To perform the substitutionary sacrifice so that our guilt and shame and pain can be taken away if we receive the consequence of that. Loud cry, breathes his last. And then what does he say? What happens here? Who's this talking about? The centurion. Who's that? That's the guy in charge of the detail that has just crucified Jesus. This is a professional killer, a master of his trade, who watches Jesus on the cross and says, surely this man is the Son of God. A cry of faith 
What was it that moved this professional killer, this hardened murderer of people? What is it that moved him to respond that way? It was the cry of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. It was an act of goodness. It was an act of compassion. It was an act of incredible generosity. That's the weapons of war. Is the goodness, the forgiveness, the compassion. The willingness to bear the pain for the sake of those who don't deserve it at all. And the centurion is the one who says, truly, this man was the son of God. So here we see the the righteous one, the very son of God himself, the second person of the Trinity, abandoned by God so the guilty ones could draw near to God and find full forgiveness and full healing. What's the condition? To admit I've got a need and say, Jesus, help me. Henry Nguyen says, where God's absence was most loudly expressed, God's presence was most profoundly revealed. See, that's the question that we're asking here. What would be your response? What would be your response to that person who sinned against you? Will you genuinely work forgiveness and seek reconciliation like Jesus did, even as very crossly? What about your own stuff? your own brokenness, your own offense. It's easy to see those who offended against us. It's harder to see my own offense. But see, when we see it in the light of the God of all grace who says, I will help, then I can maybe trust and say, let me talk about the garbage in my life. Let me talk about the sin and the shame that I don't talk to anybody about because it's so incredibly painful to talk about that. Maybe you're one of those who's looking at Jesus now and saying, I don't know. His forgiveness and healing is free. At the only cost is you've got to admit that you need it and receive it. For many of you here, you've made that decision. There's an ongoing repentance, an ongoing change in your life, and you need his help to do that for sure. But see, you may be the person who is going to that centurion and exhibiting compassion and forgiveness and hope and gentleness and saying, dude, let's talk. Let me introduce my friend. His name is Jesus. And he died so you can not have to carry that weight of betrayal. And you're that person who will fight the weapons, fight with the weapons of goodness to overcome the work of the serpent because He will not win. Thank you, Father, for loving us with an unending love. Thank you, Jesus, for dying so that we can live. Thank you for taking our shame so we don't have to live with it. Thank you for coming to newness of life so that we can share in that life full of joy and hope, and but join with you in the mission of going into very hard, difficult, excruciatingly painful places to bring your hope and healing. 
And I pray for this church as it goes through a journey of healing to take that message of goodness and forgiveness and cleansing to a world around that needs it so desperately. And I pray this in the name of the crucified, resurrected, exalted Savior, Jesus. Amen.